Hello and welcome back to Out of the Question, brought to you by The Kicker. This week on The Kicker, you can read my piece about the top 10 sketches in Australian comedy history. You might love it, you might be outraged, you'll definitely laugh. That's at thekicker.substack.com. And if you want to pay five bucks, it not only helps keep The Kicker on the road, but you also get bonus content on the podcasts and a whole archive of writing and journalism. That's thekicker.substack.com. Now, this week's guest is my longtime pal and work colleague, Sarah Wilson. Sarah is a multi-New York Times and Amazon best-selling author, podcaster, international keynote speaker, philanthropist, and climate change advisor. She founded the I Quit Sugar Movement, a digital wellness program, and 13 award-winning books that sell into 52 countries. In 2022, Sarah sold the business and gave it all to charity. In what seems like a lifetime ago, Sarah was the editor of Cosmopolitan Australia at the age of 29. She also hosted season one of MasterChef Australia, was a journalist at the Sunday Magazine, which appeared in the Sunday Herald Sun and the Sunday Telegraph, and that's where she and I became mates. As usual, I started off by asking Sarah how her colleagues would describe her. That is a really tricky one because um, for about 15 years, Adam, I have worked for myself, but I have lots of people that work adjacent to me. And I've always had an assistant um, who works remotely. Sometimes they've, you know, for years at a time, they've worked alongside me when I've been in one spot. Um, And they've generally worked for me seven years, for seven years. And then, I don't know, there's that seven year itch that happens between us and they move on. Um, But I would say the people that I do work with would describe me as intense. Like I think there, that would be the common consensus. Um, yeah, it, I, it's no big secret because I've written a book about it. I have bipolar and I was diagnosed with it when I was 21 and uh, part of the reason I work on my own is almost to save the rest of the planet from having to work with me. But there's certain people that I think do enjoy it um, mm. and do enjoy being part of my Um, going down rabbit holes and taking ideas out to their nth degree and um, doing lots and lots of things at once. You know, I have lots of plates spinning and there are some people that, you know, quite enjoy being part of that flurry and I call them the other half of my brain because they are literally there finishing sentences, know what I'm going to be wanting to do next and those who work well with me um, and flourish in it, and, and it's not for everyone working with me, and I am the first to admit that, um, they actually enjoy being part of that momentum and they're really good at stepping in when I get a bit clusterfucky. Like mm. I can get too many things going on at once and I, I can't make decisions, you know. It's very mm. linked in with anxiety, this inability to make decisions. Anyone who has stood in at the toothpaste aisle at the supermarket and gone, <laughs> oh, my God, I'm having an existential breakdown, will know what I mean, right? Yeah, like when yeah. you have too many decisions, it overworks that part of the brain, the same part of the brain that controls decision-making controls anxiety. So it's, you know, it's a neurological basis for it. So they'll often be there and able to help me make decisions. They'll step in. Um, so, yeah, I think intense... Um, Probably a little bit, um, yeah, undecided at times. You know, I think I can sometimes really start to kind of float in the abyss of uncertainty, but I've come to learn that that's actually a necessary part of the creative process. Mm. So, yeah. so when I knew you, so, so when we were both at the um, Herald Sun or Sunday Magazine, 
you would have so you would have just got the bipolar diagnosis around then shortly before yeah right wow and um and then you had the herald sun to deal with well the funny thing is i think people with who've got quite intense anxiety issues um i often say this the stuff that most people find anxiety inducing like presenting in public or live television i actually find that a cinch compared with the shit that i make up in my head Mm -hmm. you know what i mean yeah totally so in in some ways it inoculates you against some of the everyday stressors and um Mm. it's also why you know people with bipolar end up becoming really great wartime leaders something like between 70 and 90 percent of wartime successful wartime leaders have had bipolar that's huge because it's such a specific condition it really only affects between 1.2 and 1.4 percent of the population so winston churchill is probably the best example Mm. he was a great wartime leader but he was absolutely terrible in peacetime. Yeah, yeah, that's exactly right. Mm. Um, what's the most unhelpful feedback you've received? <laughs> the big one that I get, um, not so much in the work environment, uh, but elsewhere, is you just need to learn to relax, right? Oh. And it's sort of funny, isn't it? Like intense people don't turn around to you know, in, uh, relax people or chilled out people and say, you just need to fire up a bit more, right? <laughs> that's, yeah, yeah, that's... <laughs> we just don't do that. But I know it comes from uh, well-meaning intentions. They sometimes see intensity, it challenges them and they want us to dial it down. But one thing I've learned, and I actually learned this from when I was at the editor of Cosmopolitan, there was a sociologist or demographer, I think he was, called Marcus Buckingham, and he used to write lots of pop cultural stuff and he used to write for for us as well. And he did a piece on how the most unhappy women or the most unhappy people on the planet are female lawyers in their 40s. Won't go into why, but what he wanted to do is work out what made the um, happiest women happy. And what he found was they didn't try to chill out. They didn't try to, fi- try to find perfect balance between their yoga sessions, looking after kids, um, sitting down at emails. What they did instead was they tilted. They tilted mm. in any given moment to the thing that mattered to them or was most pressing um, and or perhaps even what charmed them the most. And quite often it will be their child's needs, right? So um, I've learned... When I hear that advice, sometimes I I do see it as a little bit of a trigger to go, all right, maybe I'm actually, um, you know, sort of stepping in on other people's orbits. Like maybe I'm actually annoying a few people. So I do take a step back. I'll see people's expressions, you know, that, oh, my God, I might be getting a little too intense right now. And I just take a little step back, you know. I'll go back to meditating. I will often, this this is the thing that works the most effectively. I pack my backpack and I get my tent and everything and I go off into the bush and I'll go off there for even just one night. I sleep in dirt around no people and that grounds me and I come back and, um, you know, so I tilt towards that because I know it works. So just getting into nature, yeah. And my most recent book, I don't mean to plug it. um, No, please, please, that's what it's it's, for. It's more so that I don't sound like I'm repeating the same old story. It's like, yes, I know I've written about it. Um, (laughs) But in this one wild and precious life, I hiked around the world for three years and followed in the footsteps of quite a few bipolar minds, but people who've been courageous for whatever reason and have gone to the hard place, gone to the edge to really connect with what gets us connected back into life. You know Mm. what I mean? Um, And 
you know, what I found and I sort of was doing a lot of stuff in nature and so I looked into that side of things and there's about 42,000 studies that have been done on the effect of being walking in nature, so hiking. And um, I looked at a bunch of them so that my readers didn't have to, but there are, you know, in South Korea and Japan, they've actually got health policies based around um, the benefits of being in nature and being in forests. So kids with ADHD in South Korea, before they're put on medication, are shipped out to forests on these camps to actually settle down um, and learn better behaviour. Yeah, when I say better behaviour, behaviour that's more balanced. Yeah. Um, And so... Yeah, the thing that I can just say, I don't know if this is a a podcast for hacks, but just get into nature, whether it's the ocean, Mm. whether it's a park down the road, when you're anxious, when you're feeling like you need to maybe tilt to the right Mm. things a little, just be around trees and, you know, take take some comfort from knowing there's 42,000 studies that show that it works. It just works. That's fantastic. Great Mm. advice. What's the failure you most cherish? I've got so many. I've got more failures than successes. And um, and to do to be honest, it's got a little bit to do with um, so in addition to bipolar, and I think the two go hand in hand, I've got um an autoimmune disease which almost killed me when I was 34. Um oh. so I got I was the editor of Cosmopolitan and had to quit and um just because I was so unwell. And it <laughs> I get unwell, I think, sometimes. I think sometimes an autoimmune disease, or at least my autoimmune disease, is the thing that actually put the brakes on me when I really needed it. Mm. It ground me to a halt. So I couldn't walk. I couldn't work for a year and I couldn't walk for a year. I was super, super unwell and did a lot of damage to my body because I ignored it and I just kept going and going and trying to push on through. Um, so, So most of my failures have come about when I have not read the signs, you know. Mm. So James Hollis, who's a wonderful Jungian psychotherapist, he's written countless books. He's in his 80s now. He does wonderful work on young men. Um, Very, very erudite um, speaker. And I've done a, a podcast interview with him about a year ago. But he has this wonderful phrase and it's, um, it's our souls are calling us to an appointment with life. Right. Oh, so wow. when when we get that itchy feeling at 3 a.m. in the morning where we're going, something's not right, that's our souls, you know, and you can interpret it in whatever way you want, um, giving you a little whisper. And then mm. the whisper, if you ignore it, will turn into a bit of a tap on the shoulder and then it will turn into a push and then it will turn into a shove and then it will turn into an almighty slap down if you don't listen to it. Mm. And so, you know, like so many of us, I would hear the whisper and then I would hear, you know, and it would go further and further and I'd ignore it. And when I was 34, I got the almighty slap down. And each time I've had a failure, so I also did one season of MasterChef, the first yeah. season with um, the one where Poe and Julie Goodwin uh, yeah, yeah. competed to in, in the finals. Oh, it's fantastic. It was an ep- it was an epic, epic experience. But again, I had made the commitment when I left Cosmo and got really sick and Essentially, it got to the point where I I uh, was going to take my life, and I write about this. So, um, and you might not need to put trigger warning on this episode, Adam. I don't know, but um, I made yeah. the decision. It's a long story, obviously, and and a lot more nuance. But I made the decision to live. But I made the decision to do it on the condition that I didn't get caught up again. That I listened yeah. to those voices, and I and I became agile to it all, and I stayed <laughs> in in 
in commune with life. You know what I mean? Mm. And so I, so MasterChef, I got lured back in and again, it felt wrong. I was getting those voices again. Um, just, you know, when I say voices, I wasn't hearing voices. I wasn't going mad, but I was just going, this is not right. Yeah, this yeah. is not what I'm meant to be doing with my life. Um, and so I quit, you know, yeah. and, and it's really hard quitting those jobs when you're in the spotlight. Biggest show in Australia. It was yeah. the biggest show in Australia. It was like a, a phenomenon the I mean, first season. I edited the biggest magazine in Australia. Then I hosted the, um, you know, the biggest show. And you're yeah. right, um, that, that series, that, uh, that season was the biggest show in Australian history. Yeah. And I think the finale was the most watched show ever outside of a sporting event. Yeah, yeah. Um, and so, yeah, I'm, I've managed to kind of get these bit. I mean, my lessons are super loud you know what I mean like my soul is just booming at me so anyway I um I would say all of my failures fit that criteria yeah and so the older you get I mean Steve Jobs in that commencement address that he did to Stanford many years ago you know he talked about how his life looked like a whole heap of dots on the page and it made no sense and he used Mm -hmm. to fret about it and then he said it was just sheer years on the planet that they weren't his words but it was just getting older and more experience and more dots on the page that you turn around and you see all of those dots actually yeah. join a pattern, you yeah. know. And so I think that that's what I'm able to do now. I can see that all of my so-called failures work to a certain theme and they were perfect. They were mm. exactly what I needed. And, look, it's happened so many times. You know, I I started up the I Quit Sugar business off the back of that MasterChef, you know, quitting. Yeah. And um, that turned out really well. Yes. But, again, as soon as I started to get caught up and as soon as the business went from being an education campaign that was very community orientated and was more about leveraging and trying to get money to keep a big behemoth going, once again, I quit. And I, you might know this, I decided to give all the money to charity because I knew I needed to do something that put a line in the sand, right? I just had to keep doing things that That's ensured great. I did not get caught up. Yeah. Um, what, what was your upbringing? Um, what did your parents do and and where where did you grow up? Yeah, I grew up, um, in a large family. I'm the eldest of six kids. Mum and dad, um, had me when they were quite young and, um, didn't have a lot of money. Dad always, dad has trained me to say we weren't poor, we were broke. Yeah. <laughs> I think that somehow preserves some more of his dignity. Um, but dad was very resourceful. So he moved us out to some land. It was in the drought. And we grew up out on this sort of subsistence living property about That's an right. hour outside Canberra. Yeah. 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 And so um, we commuted to a country school and then into town, into Canberra uh, yeah. for high school. Um, but yeah, it was a very simple upbringing. Um, everything was secondhand. We even ate, you know, day old food because mum had a pig farmer's license um and we sort of yeah a bit isolated from a lot of things you know pop cultural things you know we didn't do sleepovers um there was no after school stuff um so it's just me and my brothers on bmx's basically that's that's what we did although when i was 12 i started up a business um I even had a business card, um, a business name. <laughs> Obviously, it wasn't registered. My parents had no idea what it was about. I can about, so imagine that. Yeah, I, I, it was, um, do you remember Fimo? It was a modelling clay that you'd make things. Yeah. You'd massage it for ages. It's still around. Yeah. I used to make doll's house furniture as well as, wait for it, gum nut jewellery. 
Oh right. So and brooches with waratahs and and um parrots and you know lorikeets and cockatoos and so on and weird kind of kids' jewelry. And I also used to paint, I bought a, a, a big roll of calico, which is a really basic cheap fabric. And I made library bags, like kids' library bags, and painted them with all kinds of things on them. So I'd earn enough money to get some paint or some calico. And I would sell these things in really bougie toy stores in Canberra. And once a month, mum would take me into town. I'd have a day off school and she would take me in and I'd do the rounds like as a little 12 year old and I was very undersized. So I looked even younger and I would drop off more of my gear and pick up my money. And I was called (laughs) money bags in the family. You're Um, such a Capricorn. Yeah. How did you remember? I was like, you're a Capricorn. Capricorn. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. That's right. I am such a Capricorn, right? <laughs> so that was that was kind of my childhood. And then when I was, I think, in year 10, we moved into Canberra because irony of all yeah. ironies, middle of the drought, uh, mum and dad had to ship water or buy water from town and uh-huh. they couldn't afford it. And it gotcha. Just, so the, they couldn't afford the subsistence living um, life and so yeah. it sold up and, and we moved into Canberra. Right. Wow. Wow. That's really interesting. And it's it's almost like your dharma to kind of, you know, to, to, you know, give to charity and live the life you're living. It's, you know. Yeah. I think, um, I think people who grow up like that, you either go one way or the other, right? You either turn into a capitalist pig because you just like, I'm getting away from that existence. Um, or you take it even further. And I would say my brothers and my sister and I, we all work in the climate arena or aid. Really? All of us. Yeah. Interesting. Mm. Wow. And ride bikes everywhere still, all of us. And all and of you, the nieces and nephews are the same. Are your parents still alive? Yeah. Super oh. fit, super healthy. Oh, um, that's great. Yeah. And they're um, still in love and um, still doing kind of vaguely hippie things and a bit activist <laughs> and all that kind of thing. Yeah. Fantastic. Um, question four is which word or phrase do you most overuse? Oh, you've probably heard it several times in this conversation. I'm not aware of it, um, but I'm aware of it because I hear the rest of my family say We th- say things like kind of and sort of and you know. Yeah, 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 right. Yeah. And I think it comes from not being absolutely certain. I sound very emphatic when I talk and I think I convince a lot of people I know what I'm doing. And so often I actually have the caveat before I have a meeting or when, where, when I've been working on teams, on group projects, I offer oh, just one sec. I'll have to ask right. this little it, it totally foster fine. kid. Yeah, yeah, Is yeah. it right? She's yeah. squealing at something totally. she's watching on, oh, on the uh, electronic babysitter. Um, so so when I'm when I'm in meetings and so on and we're brainstorming something, I'll often say, Hey everyone, I'm gonna sound like I'm really certain and that I'm definite about what <laughs> I want, but I'm not, right? So push no, back. Yeah, I have to consciously invite people to push back and correct me or whatever. So I think I sound that way, but peppered throughout, I listen to it. I can't listen to my own podcasts because the whole way through I'm saying sort of, kind of, you know, and it's sort of, uh, sort of, uh, it's like I'm trying to get buy-in, you know, even Mm. to this, you know, this audience out there that don't get the opportunity to even tell me if they agree, but yeah, it drives me, me too. mental. I, do you I, do the I, same? Oh, when I'm listening back to the podcast, oh my god, it's the most self-esteem sapping exercise possible. <laughs> how, does, just... how do you sign? How do you sound to yourself? Uh, indecisive, a um, uh, lot of arming and ahhing, slow, kind of you know pondering. But I think it's the thing of being a writer because I'm trying to find the right word, but the right word doesn't come to me straight away. You know, mm. so. 
I've got to really think about it. Yeah, I I agree with you. As a writer, we're perfectionists, and so we want to actually construct the sentence correctly. Yeah. You know what we probably need to do? We probably need to hang out, hang out with more sports stars, right, and just yeah. fill fill the gaps with cliches. Yeah. <laughs> Game too and hard. not be worried about it. Don't no, care. just verbal diarrhea. Just keep it going. Keep it going. <laughs> the mm. final question, Sarah, do you have a motto? Yeah, I always have had mottos. Um, again, it's generally, I generally realise I have them because somebody points it out to me, you know, like I don't oh, realise nice. I'm, I'm saying it or living by it. But one of the big ones is at the moment is uh, care begets care. So yeah. I really, I lose heart a lot in the climate fight. I'm like, why yeah. do I bother to carry a keep cup when, you know, Shell's just about to blow up something or the government is still letting all of these gas projects be approved and so on? What's, you know, everybody goes through this. Mm. But what I say to myself, two things. First of all, um, when we see another person caring and putting the effort in, we actually rejoice. The studies that have been done that show that even watching someone doing an act of either kindness or caring um, stimulates a part of our brain related to sort of the dopamine um, pathway that gets us happy and so and then inspired to do the same. So I always feel that every single thing I do is an advertisement for other people to feel encouraged to do the same. Oh, that's um, great. And, and I try to do it visually, you know. Yeah, I'm on yeah. bloody Instagram. I resent it. I hate it. But I do it as almost like an advertisement for the counterculture. I wear the same mm-hmm. clothes over and over again. I go hiking, not shopping. And I just try to, Seth Godin said this to me um, in a bunch of in- interviews I've done with him, you know, um, we've got to make the new way of doing things cooler than the status quo or sexier Mm. than the status quo and so his phrase is people like us do things like this you know so I'm over here I'm having my own party and I'm wearing the same bra I've been wearing for 10 years so yeah yeah yeah. um, so I I I think care begets care (laughs) works in that way but I also think we don't know what's going to happen right we've got AI the threat of nuclear war Mm. again um, and that's real. That's not mm. just a you know a piece of phraseology I pick up from the eighties. Um, mm. The climate crisis, biotech. There's a whole range of things that are adding up to a very you know worrying existential risk threshold. Mm. And so we can either bury our heads in the sand, or we can fret ourselves into you know a pot of ghee or something, <laughs> or we can actually go. I'm going to fight and live this way and I'm going to have, I'm going to enjoy it. So for me, care is something that I do in the meantime. I don't know what's going to happen, but in the meantime, I'm going to give a shit. That was actually a motto that um, we had hanging on the wall at uh, I Quit Sugar. It was like, do we give a shit about this, right? And if we do and we want other people to, we did it. That was our sort of barometer is, is and we had had, had, had a hashtag, give a shit. And I sort of yeah. still work about we have to give a shit. And that's that's the essence of life. That's the essence of a good life. Yeah. And even if it doesn't actually amount to anything, I think it does. I think it does become the infectiousness that then leads to us voting in a better government. It mm. leads to the fossil fuel companies observing that, ah, our customers care about this. We're going to have to shift course. Mm. Um, but at the same time, it's the way to live in the meantime. You know, yeah. do we want to go down being apathetic? You know, no, we want to yeah. go down as noble humans, the best humans we can ever, 
ever be. So yeah, care begets care is probably my most um, precious motto. That's lovely. That's a lovely way to end. Thank you. 